Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest podcast number 925 with Philippe Bouzou about his new book entitled Aligning the Dots, The New Paradigm to Grow Any Business. This podcast number 925 is brought to you by Tom Palladino, the founder of Scalar Light. If you want to learn more about Tom and the Scalar Light treatments, please visit his website at www.scalarlight.com. That's www.scalarlight.com. And now for a featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with Philippe Bazou about his new book entitled Aligning the Dots, The New Paradigm to Grow Any Business. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I don't want to mess up your last name, Philippe. How do you say it? It's Buisu. <laughs> Buisu. Right. Uh, PhD is joining us from Silicon Valley. And Philippe Buisu has a new book called Aligning, Aligning the Dots, The New Paradigm to Grow Any Business. Um, this is a book for people that want to grow their businesses and want to expand and do it with less effort, but more thought. Um, That's what I'll say. I think a lot of people try and do it the hard way. Mm -hmm. Philippe uh, can help you do it the easier way by understanding what's going on in your business, some of the analytics. So when he says the new paradigm to grow any business, he means that. And um, I'm going to let him know a little bit about you, Philippe. He spent three decades in Silicon Valley as an entrepreneur, a CEO, venture capitalist, and management consultant. He is the co-founder and managing partner at Blue Dots Partner LLC, a management consulting firm focusing on top-line revenue acceleration for companies or business units with revenues between 10 million and 1 billion. Um, You have a fascinating background and Blue Dots also, for those of you who want to learn more about Blue Dots, just go to bluedotspartners.com. He has a new produced video called The Alignment Zone. And I think that you guys can get some uh, really good information from the alignment zone. It's some interviews that he's done there and from our interview as well, which is going to be just fantastic. And we're going to cover as much ground as we can in the time we have. Uh, but again, there'll be a link to Amazon to aligning the dots. Well, Philippe, tell our listeners, if you would, a little bit about yourself, Blue Dot Partners, and how you help startups and mature businesses grow and prosper. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Greg, for having me on your show. It's a real, real pleasure and a treat. Um, I am an entrepreneur at heart. I really like to start things and I like the transformational process of taking an idea in uh, somebody's brain and uh, start to build a product or a service, start to generate revenue and make happy, you know, and, and make happy customers. Um, and I don't really care if it's, you know, somebody trying to sell ice creams on a corner of a road or somebody who is trying to build the next Apple, the next Tesla. Um, I, I think that uh, entrepreneurs 
are amazing. It's they go after this very difficult quest and journey of building something real. I have tremendous respect for that, and uh, it's really really hard. Um, I've been in Silicon Valley for over 30 years, as you mentioned. I am a software guy. I actually studied a Unix software company when I moved here. I sold it to our largest customer, then worked for Hachette, one of the largest publishing companies in the world. Then uh, spent three years at Apple, uh, where I studied and ran the Internet Commerce Group. I worked directly for Steve Jobs, which is, by the way, how I lost my hair, in case you ever wondered. Um, yeah, you said and, that. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, and, and then I went to the VC almost by accident, um, and I became a VC. So I was on the other side of the table, writing checks and investing in, in incredible entrepreneurs uh, and, and helping them as much as I could. And then I've been in management consulting for, I don't know, 15, 15 years now. Um, and Blue Dots is a firm that uh, John Orcutt and I started back in 2014, and uh, we are focused on helping companies grow their top line faster. It's all about growth uh, because Growth is so critical to any business, and that's the focus we have at Blue Dots. Well, you work, like you say, with any organization in the book, you say, from $1 million to, you know, uh, and above. But, you know, as somebody who's invested in all kinds of startups, meaning yourself, mm-hmm. um, you have to look at lots of different variables and things. And you mentioned that one of the most painful and meaningful lessons is that when a business is not growing relative to its market, that it's on a declining path. How do you help business owners realize this death spiral they're in and how to get them out of it? Because, you know, I think sometimes businesses I'm working with run that right now is at 9.6 million. And there's this, well, can it go beyond where it is with the current management kind of thing, right? Because there's there's issues. Um, and sometimes the CEO has to wake up to that and he needs somebody like you to wake him up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, besides intervention like that, how do you help these people see that they're on a, a trajectory that's not going to create the growth that they'd like? Yeah, I mean, growth, I think, is one of the most vexing challenges all CEOs and entrepreneurs and business leaders have to face. Um, and the traditional way of growing, which is, you know, I need to generate more sales, so therefore it's a sales issue. And then the sales guys typically says, well, we don't have the right lead, so it becomes a marketing issue. And then the marketing guy says, well, the product is not exactly what it should be, so that it becomes a product issue. And the poor product guy says, well, I didn't have the budget, or you gave me too short of a timing to build a real great product. Um, and this circular uh, conversation just doesn't lead anywhere, in my opinion. And it's just like finger pointing and it doesn't really address the issue of growth. Now, let's just step back for a second and, and, and understand some context. Growth is really critical. Um, I was with Brecken Darrell, the CEO of Logitech, just a few years ago. And he was telling me that, that growth is really a matter of survival. You either are growing your business or you die. Now, that's true for businesses that raise money and have investors um, and have shareholders, but it's also true for small businesses because if you're not growing, inflation is you know, making things more and more expensive. Therefore, you need to generate more dollars to, to be able to deal with that inflation. So if a business is not growing, then it becomes, that means, and, and by the way, when I talk about growth, it's always relative to the market that the business is targeting. So there's always a context for that growth. It's not just growth as an arbitrary percentage number. 
Um, but if you're not growing faster than your market, then your competition is and you're losing market share and you become irrelevant and, and uh, you're not creating shareholder value. In fact, I don't know any other way that growing faster than your market in order to generate real and sustainable shareholder value. And so that's yeah. why growth is really, really critical. And, and that has to be addressed by any entrepreneur and any CEO and any business. Well, I love your part in the book about uh, you're a skydiver. And I remember you talking about that and creating alignment. And this mm-hmm. is really an important part. You mentioned that if you had to summarize your book in one word, it would be that it would be alignment. You mm-hmm. state that alignment is the key to maximizing revenue and growth. Can you tell the great story about skydiving, your personal experiences, and the three stories that exemplify alignment and great connection? Yes. Yeah, so in uh, on July 30th, uh, 30th, 2016, in Simi Valley, California, not too far from where you are, actually, Greg, um, a guy named Luke Akins made history. So he jumped out of an airplane from an altitude of 25,000 feet. Now, jumping from an airplane, to me, is not such a big deal because I've done it over a thousand times. So I spent 20 hours of my life literally falling, just falling at 120 miles per hour, uh, just like Luke Akins did on his skydive. And I am sure some of you listeners must think about me that this guy is nuts. Well, let me tell you, they're not alone. That's what my wife thinks as well. Oh, I've been out, but I haven't done as much as you have. But my point yes. is this guy who jumped from 25,500 feet also jumped into a net. Right. So, so well, that's that's the biggest part. Right. That's so like the big difference little... <laughs> between Luke's skydive and all my jumps is that he did it without a parachute. Yeah. And no, he didn't. I actually safely landed in a hundred by hundred foot net. And and now you you tell me who is nuts, you know, that is crazy. <laughs> that's pretty um, and the the one critical thing that he has to do from the beginning to the end of a skydive. By the way, the skydive lasted two minutes and eight seconds, and it took him over two years to prepare it. This is not this is not something you just do. Wake up one day and say, "Oh, I'm going to try to jump without a parachute." But the one really critical thing to his survival and to his success is that he had to realize and maintain a perfect alignment between the bo- his body and the net. And that alignment was a matter of death, you know, if if he didn't realize it. And to grow any business faster than the market, faster than the market that the business is in, is really a function of creating and maintaining a perfect alignment between the business and its target market. Exactly the same way as Luke Akins had to create and, uh, and maintain a perfect alignment between his body and the net. And so that remarkable um, story, and, and by the way, there's the video on YouTube. If you look, if you do a search on Luke Akins, A-I-K-E-N-S, you will find a video and you can see the scatter, which is really remarkable. Um, and that is a very good example of something that's really hard to do, but that's critical. And that's in a way, that's what CEOs and entrepreneurs and business leaders have to do. They have to understand what it means to be aligned with their market and how to maintain that alignment. And you know, I've watched a couple of those videos, but I've watched the ones that uh, Red Bull did about the yeah. guy at a hundred and something but there yes. was also, I watched the whole, uh, not to sidetrack us here, but the one of the executives at Google was trying to master this as well, right? And he was in his late 50s, early 60s, mm-hmm. um, and he jumped from a higher altitude than the guy at Red Bull. Yeah. 
Um, and the preparation to, to get it right was just, you know, when you look at all of the elements that went oh, into yeah. it, the weather conditions and this and that, yeah. the, the suit that he was wearing. And I found the whole thing just fascinating. I think that's the same thing you're talking about. And in your example about A4 precision alignment, you tell a wonderful story to exemplify pain versus claim and perception versus message. Can you tell the story and speak with our listeners about the power of the four alignment, including purchase versus sale and delight versus offering uh, and use the Apple computer case, which was kind of a great study. Yeah. So, so if, you know, the, the question is, okay, I need to align my business with my target market. What does that really mean? And how do I do that? And they are, four universal axes of alignment between any business and its target market. And the stunning fact is that those four axes of alignment are are truly universal. So I can take a cafe on the left bank of Paris. I can take Tesla, Boeing, American Airlines, or a small, you know, mom and pop shop selling, you know, clothing. They apply the the exact same way. So the first axis of alignment is between the pain and the claim. So the pain that the customer has and the claim that the business makes to address that pain have to be aligned. So if you come to me, Greg, and you say, I have a headache, and I show you a stomachache pill, obviously your pain and my claim, which is solving stomachache issues, are not aligned, you will never buy my pill. The second axis is the expression of the claim, which is really the messaging, which is how I express my claim to prospects and customers, and the understanding of that claim, which is the perception, have to be aligned. So imagine I have a pill for your headache, Greg, and I describe it to you in Korean or language you don't speak. You will never buy the pill, even though it would be the perfect pill for your headache, because you're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? You will not understand what I'm talking about. That's the second axis. The third one is the way customers want to buy and the way the company sells have to be aligned. So if I say, great, you can get my pill, but you have to fly here in Palo Alto and to get it in the pharmacy, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, there is a pharmacy just down the street from where I live. Why do I need to take a plane to buy your pill? So the purchase and the sale have to be aligned. And then the last axis of alignment is my favorite one called I stole it out of the Apple playbook, which is by working with Steve Jobs, I realized that there is one and only one universal business on this entire planet. And so everybody is in the same single, unique, universal business. And that business is the manufacturing and delivery of delight. When somebody buys a product or a service, that person has a certain delight expectation in their heads. And as the product or the service is consumed, that expectation has to be met. There cannot be an impedance mismatch between what I expect and what's delivered. So that's the last axis. So the four axes is the pain of the customer and the claim the business makes have to be aligned. The perception, which is the understanding of the claim, and the messaging, which is the expression of the claim, have to be aligned. And then the way customers want to buy and the way the product or the service is sold in the marketplace have to be aligned. And finally, the expected delight and the delivery, what's delivered to that customer have to be aligned. And I, I really that- believe that your delight is a very, very, uh, it's what so many companies miss. Mm-hmm. They don't get that. Now, I've had many people in advertising on and I've had, you know, hundreds of guests. 
But one of the things that's always said about Apple is in between all these divisions, now Apple's a huge company, okay, I'm using it as a gap, but it doesn't matter. You can distill this down to a million dollar company. Mm -hmm. They have perfected to a large degree the whole customer delight cycle in every phase from whether you're buying an iPhone or you're buying an iMac or you're doing Mm -hmm. whatever and the customer service and the way in which they handle the customer, whatever that culture is that they've created, they've been able to link that. How is it, now you used to work for Steve Jobs, maybe it Mm -hmm. wasn't that way back then, but today I personally think of all the companies I can think of that the customer delight experience, like Disney, Disney tries to do that too, Right. It's like I go to Disneyland. I know what I can expect every time I get it. It's the the same thing. But but the reality is there's something about that delight, Mm -hmm. which wants me to tell everybody else, go buy an Apple iPhone, go buy an iMac, go back an iPad, whatever it is. Right. So how do you help smaller businesses make certain that all those stages in between and all that communication that has to occur between department, 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 can continually satisfy that delight of the customer? Well, it has to be part of the culture. It has to be part of the DNA. It has to be part of the obsession. It has to be part of the reason and the why people get up in the morning because their mission is to deliver that delight. That's the way it is. That's the way it is at Apple. We would never compromise on the quality of the delight. And it has to be engineered the same way you would think about manufacturing and distribution channels and packaging and pricing, it has to be engineered in the product consumption cycle. So if you really look at the amount of energy you spend using a product or a service over time, you will find a a kind of a bell curve. So the initial phase, and there's six phases. The first phase is the discovery, which is the very first time you open the iPhone box or you sit in your new car or you put your new watch on your wrist. And then you have the usage, and then you have the maintenance, the upgrade, and the customer support. Those are the three after that. And then the last one is the disposal. What do you do when you decide you don't want to use the product? Now, for an Apple, you can take any Apple product and bring it back to any Apple store. They will take it, and they will recycle, and they will protect the planet by doing so. So Apple has engineered the this obsessive nature of delivering delight for each of those six steps. So when you open a box and you open a new iPhone, the noise that it makes, the way the little thing that you grab with your finger to pull, the smell, there is actually olfactic engineers at Apple who care about the smell, which is a tricky problem, by the way, because women and men have very different sense of smell. Um, and this whole idea of making sure you're not going to open the box and then drop the iPhone by accident. So there's a lot of engineering into the packaging. And that's just the first, the one of the six first steps, which is the discovery phase. Mm. So Apple by design is obsessed about each of those six steps. And they said, okay, how do we maintain the product? It's one of the six steps. How do we dispose of the product when the customers decides to not use the product anymore? And it's really ingrained in the DNA of the company in everything we do. And and it's not by accident. That's just the way Steve wanted the whole culture to be. And we would never compromise on the delight delivery phase of any of our products. Well, it it is so exceptional um, mm-hmm. as a company 
that it's no wonder they're, uh, you know, a two or $3 trillion company, right? Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that price is an important component of the claim. In mm-hmm. fact, now here's the thing I tell people. I would pay 30% more to buy from Apple because of the delight, mm-hmm. right? I'll pay more, yeah. right? And that's not true everywhere. You know, that 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 might not be true with Samsung because they're competing on uh, price. Mm-hmm. Many of them are. Yeah. I don't believe Apple is competing on price. That's right. Which gives them not an unfair advantage, but they figured out the formula that allows people to say, I'll pay more. So in fact, no claim should be made without pricing, you say. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how pricing affects the volume purchased of an item and the effects on the profitability of a company? Yeah, so so why so why is pricing part of a claim? Or in other words, why a claim doesn't exist without pricing? So Greg, imagine I tell you, you can fly from LAX, from Los Angeles to Paris in two hours instead of the eight hours or nine hours it would normally take. And if I say, are you interested? The first question you're going to ask me is, well, how much do I have to pay? So if I said, well, it costs $85,000 to do that flight, you're probably going to say, fine, you know, I'll sit in a plane for nine hours and I pay the $1,500 that they typically charge. Now, if I said, you know, it costs 20% more than the Air France ticket, so instead of paying $1,500, you pay $1,500 plus 20%, then now you're interested. And if I say it costs half of the price of the normal airfare for Air France, you can say, well, I want to go to Paris you know, tomorrow because it only takes two hours. So right. you can see how pricing affects your decision to purchase in a very, very big way. Yes. And if I just make the claim without pricing, it's not a claim because there's no pricing. So pricing is a very critical component of any claim. And again, a claim does not exist without pricing. Now, when I talk about pricing, it's a lot more than just dollars and cents because it's like, what's the return? What if I get sick and I cannot fly? Uh, can, can I use it as a credit? There's a lot of things. And when you sell to businesses, there is issues about procurements and terms. And is this a SaaS, you know, software license? Is this a perpetual? There's all kinds of things. So pricing is complicated. Now, the tricky thing is that Typically, as you increase pricing, your number of transactions, number of people willing to buy goes down. And if you decrease pricing, the number of people willing to buy goes up. But the problem is that the important number is the multiplication of the pricing by the number of people who are willing to buy. And that's why it's hard to optimize because sometimes you will increase your top line by decreasing your price because the volume increases and the churn goes down. But sometimes you can also increase your top line by 20% by increasing your price of 20% because people will stomach a 20% increase because they love the product so much and they maybe think it's undervalued. So that's why pricing optimization is a really tricky equation to, to solve. But it's something that most businesses don't think hard about, you know, about in terms of pricing and pricing strategy. What kind of pricing model do I want to go to market with? And, and that's really critical. You you bring up an important point there, and I think when the delight is built into it, mm-hmm. there's less a factor of what the price is, right? right? And Within especially minutes, on repeat purchases, repeat mm-hmm. purchases, mm-hmm. Um, because you won't question the price as much. You may, if it was exorbitant, 
uh, you yeah. would say, hey, wait a second, something's wrong here. Right. But if it's within a justification range of 20 to 30%, you're not going to question that. So if it was right. a Tesla and you wanted to buy the Tesla car, you're going to say, hey, I'm willing to pay more because I know there's hundreds of thousands of them out there with great customer service. Yeah. People like the car. Yeah. And you speak about a case study. And I remember this because I'm going to be 68 in July. And I remember the segue. And I remember Dean Kamen as well. And I remember I, the documentaries they did on 60 Minutes yeah. with Dean and the founder of Segway. And then Segway was initially a, a kind of a financial disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see the little carts that were running around in San Francisco down by the, the wharf and people would yeah. rent them and whatever. Tell us about the case study and about the subsequent um, purchase by Roger Brown, who bought the company from the estate of, uh, is it Jimmy? Yeah, it's Jimmy. Henderson. And speak about the perception, price, safety, and convenience. Because, you know, we see so many of these things out there now, right? It's everything from little kids going down the street on the little scooters to, you know, it's it's everywhere. It's prolific. But at the time, the Segway was the only deal. It was right. the only game in town. Right. So Segway was introduced um, on December 3rd, 2001 yeah. as, a, as a human transporter, which is a horrible right. way to describe it. Right. Um, but it was two wheels and it was self-balancing. The whole thing is that you could... You could move forward by leaning forward. You would slow down by leaning backwards, and you just tilt to turn. The problem is that it was very misaligned on the first axis to start with, which is, again, the pain and the claim. And the pain, it was really thought as, you know, a dog factor and, you know, bought by crazy people who had a lot of money to buy toys. Um there was a safety issue. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, Jimmy actually died, um, you know, from using he, one. He went off a cliff. Um, he ran off a cliff on yeah. his property. Yeah. Um, there is a famous video on YouTube that's quite funny, actually, about George W. Bush falling off uh, a Segway. Um, so it was there was a safety issue. It's like, you know, I don't want to create more pain by hurting myself. That's the last thing I want to do. Um there was, there was, you know, why would I buy one? Really, it's like, you know, I'm going to look really weird, and, and is this socially acceptable or not? There was a whole issue around this. There was issue about cities saying, well, you have to wear a helmet, and some cities would say you cannot use it on the sidewalks. So then you use it on the road where cars are. It's dangerous. Um, and then the price, it was, you know, four thousand five hundred and ninety dollars, and it's like, you know, very expensive for for a mass market. Talking about price a little bit earlier. So clearly there was no well-identified pain that was designed and that was thought by the company. And then the claim they were making with a very high price tag just didn't match any pain. And, and, and basically the company was then bought by Roger Brown for $9 million. He sold it a few years later for like $75 million. And he was bought by a company called Ninebot, which is now uh, producing the... Um, the motors and the electronic system for a scooter for Bird and Lime very successfully. And now if you think of a scooter, it costs a lot less money. Everybody knows what it is. It's pretty safe. Um, And so suddenly the technology was repackaged into a much better pain and claim alignment, which is a very successful ending. Um, But the whole thing... But even Bird and Lime got um, 
a problem with safety issues with the cities yeah, and they had true. to they yeah. had to go before the city councils and they yeah. had to uh, uh you know throw their case in there and a yeah. lot of them got kicked out because those devices became uh, nemesis for the sidewalks right yeah. it was yeah. everybody was getting hurt no yeah. not everybody but a lot of people yeah, got yeah. hurt yeah there were a lot of issues around safety for sure yeah. yes yeah so and um how would you align that Philippe uh, at this massive movement right now which i think rightfully so around electric bikes you know, you look at Rad Bike, which is probably one of the more recognized mass-produced bikes around, and you see adults, kids, everybody riding them. I know I live in a beach city, so it's like they're they're everywhere. Right. But but it's it's just in the last two years that you've seen this massive movement and price. You know, we prices vary from. $1,500 to $6,000, right? Uh-huh. So any comment about that on price? and and Because uh, I've just seen such a big movement in it. Yeah, I mean, the alignment, the A1 alignment is a much clearer situation uh, than Segway because everybody's used to bikes. And people say, you know, I cannot really bike 15 or 20 miles. It's too hard for me. Let's say, you know, somebody may say I'm 55 and it's like I'm not really in a good shape. But an electric bike really enabled that, you know, few miles to 10 miles range than a normal bicycle would not. And then, of course, the inconvenience of having a car where you have to park and it's a lot more expensive. So there is a very nice A1, the pain and the claim alignment there. I think pricing will continue to go down. And the most expensive part is the battery, which is about 30% of the cost of the bike. You can start to see movement where the cost of battery goes down. And the charge became less of an issue because it charged pretty quickly. And I actually just recently joined the board of a company in India that is manufacturing um, an electronic motorcycle. So it's not a bike, it's a motorcycle. Motorcycle. But the battery is swappable. So the recharge of the battery takes about 30 seconds. You walk into a place, you put your battery that's discharged in a rack, you take another battery in the rack that's charged, you put it on your bike and you go. It takes 30 to 60 seconds. Mm. So that solves the issue of I have to wait an hour or two hours to recharge. Um, and it's very, very modular. And of course, in India and Southeast Asia, the market for electric motorcycle is huge, much, much yeah. bigger than in the US. Well, the pollution issue is a huge The pollution issue is you know, there. You go, um, yes. go to Asia, go to India, go to any of those yeah. places and it's just yeah. uh it's it, it's prolific the amount of pollution. Yeah. Oh, well that it, and and I love your analogy there because I really think that it is important and I believe environmentally that electric bikes are going to have a huge place in society. Um I wish there are a few more restrictions on how people use them. Right. Uh right. that's that would be my only thing. Now in your chapter on the third axis you talk about purchase versus sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you speak with the listeners about the second product launches for Apple? I, I think this is important. I just said that a minute ago. Second product launches and Tesla, second product launches, and why it is all about how products are sold and the go-to market plan. Uh, right. Because look, you buy the first one, makes it easier to buy the second one, but there's a psychology behind that that they've all 
kind of built into it, right? Yeah, I think that, so the challenge is companies tend to be good at building the first product. I mean, of course, there's ups and downs on issues, but by and large, companies build a first product that's decent and that tends, that works. And then they start to rush about building the second product. And I always stop them and I said, your second product is not the product that you have in mind, which is the next version of the bike or whatever it is. Your second product, which you need to engineer from the ground up, is your go-to-market strategy. And that is the cycle by which people will buy your product and how you're going to make that flywheel spin so that more and more people buy your product. And in the go-to-market, which is all the way from generating the right leads all the way to closing and selling, that whole process itself is a product that I call the second product because that's where the energy and the investment needs to be made. Made And a lot of companies shortcut that. They don't really think it through. They don't really have a real solid go-to-market strategy. And they fail because of that, not because of their product is not good or people don't want to buy it. It's just because they don't know how to sell and they don't understand how people want to acquire that product. And so that alignment between sell and purchase is really critical. And, and again, I think it needs to be engineered. There has to be resources set aside for that in a way that's reproducible and the way that's, that really works. And that's how the growth engine will start you know, spinning. Yeah. And it, I believe everything you're saying there, you know, I see these young startups who raise uh, anywhere from um, on crowdfunding, you know, mm-hmm. from a million dollars to 10 million. And there's a new example. Um, I don't know how it got in my inbox, but it did. And it's probably because my wife and I are environmentally conscious it's called Lumi. Mm-hmm. And they make a composter that sits on your sink top and literally turns everything you put it into dirt, right? Okay. So they okay. worked three years on this thing. And I'm making using this as an example because um, when I first looked at it, I didn't buy it because it was $500 price. Mm-hmm. I now see that the demand has exceeded to August to actually get one. So I'm more apt to buy the product now because the demand is so high. Is there anything in that that's that they're doing to actually intentionally do that because of the psychology thinking, well, you've got to hurry and buy one because if you don't, you're going to miss out or what? what's going, because it's all crowdfunded. You put $49 yeah. down for a $500 product, right? right to save your spot. And right. I think crowdfunding, um, I have a friend down here in San Diego who does a ton of crowdfunding for these kind of companies. Any comment on that? Well, I think, I mean, the technique they use is scarcity, which means that they cannot, produce or manufacture enough of those products. And so they go back to you and say, Greg, you know, I know you're on the list, but you're far down the list because all of other people want the product and they haven't gotten it yet. Now they may have a manufacturing and supply chain issue, which is why they don't manufacture those products fast enough. Um, I doubt that it's intentional in this particular case. Some software company used that trick to say, you have to go on the, on the mailing list and then we'll open the software only to the first 10,000 users. So, but that's a marketing trick. I don't think this particular company would do that. I think they are just um, maybe underestimating the demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, they maybe they are not manufacturing enough. They are not stocking enough. Maybe there is a supply chain issue with China. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, but you know, that's a problem that we wrestle with at Apple for a long, long time. We were never really good at, at forecasting demand, and that's really hard. 
now the company does it much better. I mean, you know, if you, you know, if 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 Tim Cook announces an iPhone 14, then you can just say it's going to be available on Friday, you know, April 14th. Then you go there and then you'll have it. Yet yeah, sometimes it's a bit of delay, uh, but Apple has become much much better at forecasting. Now, of course, there's economy of scales and they have this huge manufacturing process. But so they're they planning. But they're planning months or years in oh, advance yeah. for that. Yeah, and, and they've and, already distributed and put yeah. them into the supply chain. Yeah. Whereas smaller companies don't you have the do resources that. Apple has. Yeah, it's really hard to right. stick it in the supply chain, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So in that case, you know, they they it's okay that you wait, but you have to wait in a reasonable amount of time because then you're going to get frustrated. So it's a really a balancing act. Um, and um and but again in this particular example I don't really know why they are not manufacturing and shipping fast enough. This is an off the wall question but you know I see this happening now with Android devices not Apple devices. Mm-hmm. But you know the leader in all these foldable phones and you see the technology is getting yeah. really really crazy. Yeah. I mean good yeah. like triple folds now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that Apple is going to go down that road because when you look at their product I get that it's simple. I get that it does its job. I get that that's always been Apple's fundamental philosophy. Um, but don't at some point you have to try and compete against that other market or do you just leave well, it completely alone? Apple doesn't care about competition. Um, and Ap- Apple never tries to be better than competition. Apple always thrives to be different. So if Samsung and everybody else start to do those phones that you can fold, Apple may very well. And of course, I'm not in a secret of Tim Cook and the design. I, I, I no idea what they're going to do. <laughs> yeah. and even if I knew, I wouldn't tell you. Right. But um, they, they like, they're going to look at this and say, that's an interesting thing, but we don't really care. And, and right. I think the reason is if you think about size of screen, the smaller size being the iWatch, and then you have the phone, and then you have the tablet, the iPod, um, the iPad, and then you have the 24-inch iMac, and now you have the 27-inch display that they just announced. And I think Apple, my guess is, and again, this is purely speculation because I do not know, but my guess is that Apple is comfortable in every one of those categories and say there is no reason to fold or unfold to move from one category to another. Interesting. I think that's the way they would think. But again, I, I may be completely wrong. You know, we none of us knows, but we know right. that there's a obviously with this device everybody in the world carries there's a lot of competition whether it's android or it's ios now in your fourth axis is delight versus offering you state that every company no matter what they sell is here to deliver delight can you tell us about some of the companies and how they have won over the consumers with delivering delight and some of the examples you used was harley davidson's mcdonald's i don't know about farmers insurance um Pixar and Ford, because, you know, I look at the insurance industry as kind of ubiquitous. It's like, it, you, you know, you're delivering a product. This is what it is. I know Farmers has more homeowners insurance customers than almost anybody. No, it's State Farm, actually. Yeah, but, I think Geico is probably better, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about that, because Harley Davidson, I get. Pixar, I get. Ford, yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Well, I think again, the, the the question is is what is delight for my customer at for my product and at the price point that I'm going to sell at. 
So you can compare McDonald's to a three-star Michelin restaurant, and I would argue that they're selling the same product. You're putting food in your stomach at the end of the day. There is really no difference. Now, the delight that you expect from a three-star Michelin restaurant paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for dinner, even though it's the same product or similar product, is very different from the delight you're going to expect for paying 99 cents for a McDonald's product. And McDonald's has been very good at developing a product at a price point that people believe that they receive delight from it. But of course, it's a very different delight than a three-star Michelin restaurant. So it's all a matter no, of spending. no longer at ninety nine cents. Well, but, okay. but I haven't God. been in a McDonald's for a while. I'm French. <laughs> I cannot go to a McDonald's, but a dollar forty nine. No, I don't go to McDonald's at all. But I know there's nothing for ninety nine cents. Anymore. Okay, fair, fair <laughs> enough. But but I mean the point that I'm making is that the light has to be in the context of the target market and the product that you're selling at the right price point. It's this whole you know three things. Um, you know, if you fly Southwest, you're not going to be delighted. There's no, it's not the same delight as, you know, first class ticket on Singapore airline, but you pay a lot less and it's very convenient. So a lot of companies are very successful and growing very fast because they understand the sandbox in which they're going to play and what kind of delight they're going to deliver and the message around the delight and they stick to that. And that's why they are very successful, even though the product or the product quality that they deliver may be completely different from the opposite side of the market, which is very expensive, very premium, and, and you know, for a reserved, you know, segment of the market. Good points you make. Now, Philippe, you've written this book, and we'll wrap up our interview here, um, that informs and educates readers and our listeners about how to create alignment, because mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about so that they can succeed at delivering the best customer experience when someone purchased their product or their service. Right. What are the three important takeaways that you would want the listeners to know about on how to achieve this alignment if they're sitting there now with a million-dollar business trying to grow it and they're struggling, or they're sitting with a $10 million business and they have the same struggles, struggles as a million-dollar business, what are the three important takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah. And by the way, it also applies to, you know, we work with businesses that are a billion dollars or $10 billion. They have the same, you know, challenges. So um, I think the three takeaways are, you know, are the following. It's alignment and then alignment and then alignment. And let me explain what I mean. The first alignment is the alignment between the business and its target market along the four axes that we described earlier. That's really critical because if you're not aligned with the market, you're not going to grow. The second alignment is what I call the internal alignment. If the team within the business is not internally aligned to execute that those four external alignments, then the company is not going to grow because they won't execute the growth strategy and they're just not going to grow anywhere. So it's really important that the team is fundamentally aligned internally so that they can successfully execute the external alignment. And in fact, it's the last chapter of my book is dedicated to that internal alignment. So it's really four plus one. And then the third alignment is the, I would say, the alignment with ourselves. I think as an entrepreneur, as a business leader, as a CEO, you have to know who you are and why you're doing this. This is crazy to start and run a business. It's really, really hard. 
And if you're not aligned with your own self, then it's really hard to align people and align with the market and be successful. So that's the third alignment that I would invite people to think about and, and think about making sure they are aligned uh, with themselves. Otherwise, they will not be as successful as they can. Well, your book is fantastic. Align Thank the you. dots um, for any business, no matter what size, you can read this and take something away. Blue Dots is the website uh, that we'll send. It's bluedotspartners.com. We'll put a link to that. We'll put a link to Amazon to the book as well. And Philippe, thanks for being on and spending a little bit of time with our listeners, sharing your wisdom and knowledge that you've acquired from working for companies like Apple and being an entrepreneur and being an investor uh, and doing the actual things. In other words, you're just not somebody who's like speaking from, I went to university and I learned a lot. You've, you're somebody who's actually been in the trenches, um, gotten into all of this, and you understand it uh, remarkably well. And I want to thank you for sharing uh, that wisdom and knowledge with our listeners. Well, Thanks. thank you so much for having me on your show, Greg. It's a real pleasure. And I hope that your listener will think about growth in a bit of a different way, you know, thinking about alignment, which is really the key to success. Well, we'll think about it, jumping out of that plane to that hundred square foot thing that we have to get get to. That's right. that's Don't alignment. That at home. <laughs> that's alignment. Thanks so much, believe. Thank you, Greg. Really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.